This is Michael Zuber, and I just wanted to thank you for listening to my One Rental at a Time podcast. Did you know that I took the time to document the entire process I used to learn my market and actually still use today? I released it as a $199 online course via Teachable, and it is called How to Get Started One Rental at a Time. With that, you get access to my private Facebook group and can join our group mentoring calls every Saturday at 9 a.m. Pacific. You can find it on my website at onerentalatatime.com. Now on with the show. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, folks. Michael Zuber, One Rental at a Time. And yes, I am back with my good friend and yes, legendary investor, Jonathan Twomley. How are you doing, sir? I am good, Michael. How are you? I'm doing well. So thank you for going through my uh, deep dive of 06 to 21 residential. As I kind of hinted in that, that, that's my experience when I answered your thought-provoking question. So you, you put out just this simple question in your Facebook group. Uh, why don't you shout out the Facebook group? Then we'll talk about the question and what we both see. Yeah, so I, I, my Facebook group is called the Multifamily Investment Community. And forgive me for a minute, I'm actually just going over there now so mm-hmm. I can get the, the question up. Um, but uh, what I, one of the things I like to do in this, uh, this group is just ask kind of, thought-provoking questions yes you just put it out there and let everybody respond like pile in (laughs) it's awesome just because you know i want to uh you know part of it is that um you know it's it's good for the group to have people engaged and Mm -hmm. you know having conversations with each other it helps them to get to know each other you know Mm -hmm. it helps them just it makes the group more fun and the other thing is i'm just really curious what people think right so i ask questions uh, you know, I try to do it every day, but I don't always get to it every day. But yes, yeah, you're, you're about four or five days a week. It's pretty good. Yeah, you know, I I, I try. To, I, there have been times I've been really good about it uh, lately, and not as much. But anyway, um, so the question I put up yesterday was, uh, is multifamily in a bubble? Yes or no? And most importantly, why or why not? I was trying to ask the why or why not question because I really want to know why. Because you know, otherwise you get a bunch of answers like no, yeah, yes, I, that's, like, not, you know. that's not helpful. <laughs> yeah, so I want to know why people say it is or it isn't. But you know, I asked the question because, uh, you know, if you've been following the multifamily markets, the cap rates are and have been for quite some time at all-time lows, and mm-hmm. you know what that means is, you know, it costs you more dollars in purchase price to get the same dollar of yield, right? So, mm-hmm. uh, you know to get essentially, you know, when I started investing, looking at C properties, this is like your older 40 years or older properties uh, in smaller markets, you know, you had to pay basically 12 bucks to get a dollar of income. Okay. Now you have to pay 20 oh. right? or more. Yeah. Or more. Yeah. Maybe even 21. Right. And so um, that has pushed the market in certain directions. And, you know, one thing, the, the question is, is it a bubble? And at least in my mind, uh, well, it's a bubble if it's not sustainable, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it's a little hard for me to kind of get my head around the idea that, like, we just went up in a phase shift to higher prices, and they're just going to stay that way forever. Now, could it ha- could happen? Could happen. Could happen. Could happen. But it just it hasn't happened ever before, and we've always you know we've mm-hmm. heard the mean cap rate over time. So, uh, you know, I haven't had the chance to go do kind of the analysis that you have done, um, but what people, well, maybe we should stop it here. I, yeah. I mean, how could we sort of 
phrase this conversation? Yeah, well, I, well, I want to reply with what I came back with, and, and then I'll kind of summarize other things I saw and the responses without calling out names. So first off, as I indicated in my, my very biased residential background, the pain that I saw and I saw up close and personal with family, friends, and other investors, in my opinion, was caused by people getting yes answers to deals that didn't make sense. Yeah. Right. And I'll use the example of my very first property that I sold at 264. Right. The buyer was an investor who got a two year teaser loan uh, basically to make the unit break even. And then after two years, and the payment essentially went up 150%, more than double. Yeah. And, and the idea at the time was, don't worry about it, I'll refi out or I'll sell to the next sucker because real estate never falls. So I've been in that environment. I blame the loan products and then the greed of investors that believed a story that just wasn't true, right? Real estate doesn't go up forever, right? Um, so that's, what, that's my baggage, my personal experience and scars or what, wisdom, whatever you want to call it. So that unfortunately is what I see going on in many, not all, many real estate deals today that come across my plate, right? I'm an accredited investor. Uh, I get deals that come at least daily, if not several a week. And a lot of them are relying on, again, a bad, what I consider a bad loan structure, IO periods, what I'll consider too short term for you know, large unit counts, you know, two and three years. Uh, they have what I consider to be un, unsustainable uh, too much greed on rent growth, uh, too low expenses. I mean, I don't see anything going on good in a lot of the deals that I see, but the loans are still getting yes answers. And why is that? Well, just like builders build, lenders lend. And I believe they've adopted some very unhealthy practices in multifamily. So I unequivocally said that, yes, multifamily is in a bubble. And then I got called out by someone. All right, smarty pants, are you selling? And I gladly replied with, hell yeah, I'm selling. If you want to overpay for anything I own, I'll gladly sell it to you. <laughs> so, I mean, I, I, when I, a couple of years ago was talking about the bubblicious nature of the multifamily markets, people asked me, are you selling? And I did. Yeah, Absolutely. I remember. I think the choice, I think the decision was a correct one because nobody could have predicted COVID and the effect that it had right. on the multifamily market. There, there's a lot of evidence in hindsight I, I kind of thought this was happening, but I had no real solid evidence of it. But you know, looking back, there's some evidence that we actually started going into to a recession January of 2020. Yep. Right. So, uh, and then COVID just sort of masked everything. Yeah. Uh, no, agreed. So it's it's very hard to kind of th- this was out of left field, and it wound up with the kind of happened. It, it did what nobody thought it would do. Everyone thought it would cause the crash in multifamily, and actually it went the other way because interest mm-hmm. rates went solo and everything else crashed yeah. everyone piled into multifamily mm-hmm. now let's kind of talk about this a little bit because the lending picture in in multifamily is a little more nuanced sure. than, than that right so the lenders have uh the lenders have not loosened their standards mm-hmm. in terms of the debt coverage ratios they are continuing to require and have required after the financial crisis they put in place certain requirements namely that you had to have your your net operating income has to be 1.25 times your debt service right okay. and they do that on a fully amortizing basis even though they may offer you interest only mm-hmm. right so 
So they have maintained their standards. And what has happened is that uh, it's causing a lot of people to be essentially priced out of the market because the loans are not getting as much proceeds as mm. as the lenders, as people want, right? So yep. they're not getting, it's called debt constraint, right? And they're okay. not getting uh, the same amount of proceeds or not getting like 80% never happens anymore. It's getting harder and harder to get 75%. Uh, you know, a lot of times the, the, the properties are coming in at, you know, uh, 65% or 60% from the lenders. So, you know, that means that your debt service payment is being held down. So that's the, you know, the low interest rates may allow, like just in single family, allow people to pay more because mm -hmm. that debt service of course. Debt is smaller. So that has driven pricing for sure. And a lot of what's happening, you know, properties maintaining their pricing uh, is dependent on interest rates staying low for long enough for you to cycle through, right? And mm -hmm. refinance. Exactly. Um, so that is that is a big risk in multifamily, right? Because if interest rates go up, it is going to become even harder to finance your property. However, yes. there's also, so, so banks are not um, the problem, let's say, in this okay. case, right? However, what we are seeing is a lot of non-traditional lenders stepping in, mm -hmm. offering more proceeds, uh, you know, off, off, and then there's also, you know, the interest only periods that banks are offering now has allowed a lot of people to go in and say, okay, look, this barely meets the, you know, when I started out, the rule was you did not want to go into a deal unless that deal, your debt service coverage ratio was at least 1.5 and preferably wow. 1.6 because if it was not that high you as a sponsor were not going to make any money hmm. right and you were going to have a hard time paying your investors so you really wanted to go in at that kind of debt service coverage ratio now and of course the banks were great happy with that oh yeah of course big cushion over what they required over the cushion they required now what's happening is people are going in at that 1.25x Right, but they don't. But they're using IO in order to actually make some returns to their investors, right? And also, the the big hope is, oh, you're going to do a value add, and then that's and you're going to get your debt service coverage ratio up to where you want it to be, so you can make money. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it is sort of like a hope and a prayer, right? And and as a result of that, what you're seeing is you're seeing properties that are very very common now in the market where you know it used to be you had your value add guys, and then you had your like stabilized buyers, right? You had the people who wanted to take a little extra risk, get a little extra return, essentially flip the properties, right? And then and make make fast money, and then hand it off to somebody who's going to own it for you know through the cycle. So they're going to hold it for five or ten years, or maybe forever, right? What has happened? But and in that situation, those value add guys did a value add. They they finish the property, right? Their, their plan was one or two years, we're going to completely rehab it and we're going to reposition it and sell it as a different product than it was when we bought it, right? Now, what you see is a lot of those guys are going in, they're starting their value add and they're realizing that it doesn't add up. 
That was in pencil. And so they're selling because they're getting crazy offers, right? So they're not making the cash flow that they anticipated and they really can't afford to wait to do the whole value add and finish it because because they don't they they just can't right and or they're getting these offers where they're like we have to take these offers because this is money in hand and like waiting another year to finish the value add uh you know they can sell it as a hope now but if they finish the value add and the rents aren't there right and the noi isn't there and there's no like teaser like hey this could be really good for you they know they're not going to sell it for what they want so they're, they're renovating 20% of the units and then they're putting it on the market as a proven value add, <laughs> which means, look, we got rent bumps on these 20% of the units, right? You can too, <laughs> if you go and do the rest of the value add and oh, by the way, you're going to pay me the post value add renovation value on the whole of, thing <laughs> of the property, yeah. but you still have to do the value add and spend the money on it. Right. And people are going for that deal. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is the next guy does 20% of the units, right? And it's the same thing. Or I have seen deals now marketed as value add 2.0, mm-hmm. which is uh, also the last seller, the seller went and did the whole value add. But now if you go do the whole value add all over again, you can get even more rent growth. Right? Yeah. Supposedly. yeah. Which, the, the, these, are, the, these are so similar to the hysteria of 06 in residential it's funny it's just a different different numbers but i'm not even done yet oh my goodness gracious so because oh my so, that's, God. So, that's, so that's one thing what the other thing that you're seeing is now buyers can't get the proceeds that they need on these loans right yeah and they're not allowed to put additional debt so that one of the things that happened in the last go round was that uh people were buying they were the banks were allowing people to take 80 or 85 percent leverage right and then they were going and getting a mezzanine loan, to go, <laughs> yeah. which is essentially, which is what is essentially what a second mortgage second, is yeah. the family, right? And they'd levered up to like 93%, right? So, and they had to do that because the cap rates got very compressed and to make, to make your money work, like to make your returns where you wanted on your equity, yeah. you had to lever it up. Now the banks put an end to that after 2008. And then actually that is one of the things that can now, you know, the multifamily loans are typically non-recourse, but they have some uh, triggers that can make them full recourse against you. And one of them is putting additional debt on the property. Ooh, yeah. Right? So okay. you can't do it anymore, but you know, there's always a, there's always a back <laughs> way, way to do this. So one of the ways that people oh, are no. doing this is they're, they've invented what's called preferred equity, which is basically mezzanine debt oh jesus we're doing it again <laughs> basically mezzanine debt but it's structured structured as equity called equity it usually has some kind of like kicker on it yeah and what it and so there's no um it's not a lien on the property right? yeah so so to get so if you def, you can't default on preferred equity right? right of course so there's no they can't foreclose on the property if you don't meet the preferred return however they are standing in front of the common equity. Absolutely. Payout, right? They're, so they make the returns to the common equity look much better because they're not participating very much in the upside. They, they get some kind of equity 
they get some kind of kicker, like in addition mm -hmm. to their interest rate on the end, it's, I guess you could compare them to points, but they're points on the back end. Mm -hmm. um, but the, um, they're not participating in all of the upside growth. So basically you take like 25% of your equity, you call it preferred equity, it acts for your equity like debt in terms yeah. of enhancing the returns, um, but it makes your prefer it makes your common equity more risky because now there's like another mouth to feed, <laughs> and the private in, in these uh, you know the 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 preferred equity um, investors tend to be very very sophisticated folks with a lot with very deep pockets and they know exactly what they're doing, which is they're saying hey this is great we're going to, we're going to de-risk our position, be, you know, we're, we're going to invest something that looks a little like debt, looks a little like equity. Hmm. It's going to, you know, pay us 15% more or less guaranteed. And the guarantee comes from the fact that basically the first dollar of loss is going to be absorbed by these individual investors who are, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the small guys. Right? Oh so, man, we're doing um, it again. Oh, so crazy. there, so there is, it's, it's kind of like, leverage, you know, just not exactly, you know, like I said, it's not debt because it can't foreclose on it, but it is risky to your common equity because there's a, it's another mouth to feed ahead of you. Right. And, yeah. um, and, you know, oftentimes these private equity arrangements uh, require some kind of takeout after two or three years mm. and, you know, by through a refinance or through something and, Honestly, I'm not sure what happens if you can't take them out, right? Like what kind of rights they have, whether, you know, it could be the rights to take over the management of the deal from the sponsor. Probably. Yeah. Right? Something like yeah. that. Something like that. So, um, <laughs> this is going to be bad <laughs> now. Now, you know, you, uh, oh, man. you Mr. Common Equity guy, like now your deal is being run by somebody who didn't sell you the deal that you don't know Yeah, if it, if it gets to that. Right. So, and who basically doesn't care about you, right? Yeah. Because they're just mm -hmm. protecting their interests. Yeah. And frankly, you were just a means to an end for them to enhance their security and, and mm -hmm. their return in the deal. So yeah. this is so we're seeing a lot of this. And all of this, all of this depends on on uh, you know on interest rates staying where they are. Now I want to kind of preface this. Now I've seen a variety of preferred equity, which I think is much better for your common equity investors, where not where it's like some big private equity group that comes in and does preferred equity or some family office, but where the sponsor is saying, hey, I'm gonna create two groups of shares. Sure. For common equity. One I've seen of that. Which, one of which is just regular equity and you're gonna get a lower preferred return, but you get upside. And the other one is, uh, you know, basically you get no upside, but you get a higher yeah, A and B uh, shares almost. Yeah, and you're high, and yeah, it's always A and B shares, and you're higher up in the order, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's um, that's a little better for everybody because it's just allowing the common equity shareholders are basically on the same footing, and they're and they're just choosing how they want their return, and like if they want a little more risk, you know, and more return, a little less risk, a little less return overall, mm -hmm. but more upfront. That. That doesn't bother me as no, much. No, not much. Uh, as long as it's upfront. Yeah. But a lot of this kind of mezzanine on the side, it's really, it's equity, not debt, but it feels like, I mean, that's, I, so back to the original question, is multifamily in a bubble? I, I think I think what I've just heard is I believed it was before and now I really believe it. Now there are deals that look good and all of that, but when you talk but, generally, oh my God. But on the flip side, there are still some other things that are 
that push against the it being a bubble, right? Okay. So like the debt, the, sure. this on the the financial side of things, it's looking it, it's looking a little scary, right? And, mm -hmm. and as said, it all depends on interest rates staying where they are for a long time or staying close to where they are. I mean, yeah. if they move up a point, no one's going to die. But I mean, if they go up a couple points, which you know they could, they right? could, yeah. Um, then you know it, it could be really tough for some people when they have to refinance if they haven't had enough rent growth over time. Yes. Right. Yes. So, um, the uh, so it almost kind of forces people into a value add situation because they have to. They, they're buying very pricey deals. They have to get the reds up, right, in order to protect themselves from when they mm -hmm. have to refinance, so that they so that they can guard against any kind of interest rate you know, increases, if there's no interest rate increases, they're going to do really, really well on the deals when they sell, because mm -hmm. the cap rates will still be low, but they need to be thinking if they're smart, they need to be thinking about that downside protection. Okay, but so the other thing that's sort of working against the idea that there's a bubble is similar to some of the stuff that you've talked about in your last, you know, the last session of this, of today's yeah. video, where, you know, there has been a uh, shortage of construction for a long time, okay. right? And there have been fewer apartments constructed than necessary for for quite a while mm -hmm. and the concentration of what the the thing that's really kind of striking is that where apartments have been constructed has been very concentrated as well correct so there was now i, I haven't seen the statistics for a while but a, a number of years ago um at more you know closer to the beginning of the cycle something like 50 percent of all new apartments were being built in just 12 submarkets around the country yeah, I saw that. Yeah. So you talk about like concentration and, and, you know, that made those markets risky and they're the usual subjects and suspects where you think about where everybody is flooding in. Um, but around the rest of the country, it meant that there was a real shortage of apartments. And I think that there are definitely markets around the country that still have a shortage. Right. Of course. Um, the, uh, but I think overall there has been, you know, absorption has been strong it's pretty much been like, if you build it, they will come kind mm. of market. Household formation has recently been rebounding, right? Mm -hmm. You have had the home ownership rate go up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the growth in the number of renters has tailed off. And, and part of it is because people are now moving, the millennial generation is moving into that home buyer mm -hmm. uh, yep. demographic, right? So that poses a little bit of a threat, but apartment construction has been, behind household formation and behind population growth for quite some time. Now, Agreed. we're at the point now where that may be shifting, where we've made, because we've had, I think this year, there were a record, not a record number of starts, but a, the highest since the 70s, basically. Yes. We have huge number of apartments um, being started now. And what that means is that, you know, the real estate cycle for multifamily is based is basically the construction cycle. And what happens is, you know, it's at the beginning of the cycle, it's very hard to get lenders to lend because they're all scared because they just went through a crash. So nothing gets built. And then as people feel safer, they start building more, lending more and building more and lending more and building more. Mm -hmm. and, and then at some point they build so much that they can't fill it up. Mm -hmm. And then there's a crash, right? And people start defaulting on their loans and like, you know, and then banks stop lending. And then, you know, the whole thing waits until those properties are fully absorbed. And then the whole thing starts all over again. We haven't, I think one of the reasons why this cycle has been so long is because they haven't been able to build enough 
to, to have oversupply. Right. Right. And, and so um, that's been, that's been why it's lasted so long, but at some point you get into an oversupply situation. Um, and especially I think in some of the markets where it's much easier to build than it is in say New York or San Francisco or what have mm -hmm. you, you know, some of the Southern states where it's far easier to build stuff and people are just throwing buildings up. Yeah. That's where it's most likely to happen. And it'll, it, and it always happens, even though, you know, it's sort of, like we've talked about this before, like, you know, if enough, if, if enough people are attract are attracted to an investment because they perceive it to be low risk, eventually they make it risky. Right? Oh, of course. So, because it, the demand for it outstrips the fundamentals. Right. And so that is likely to happen well, I wouldn't say likely to happen. It's more likely to happen in some of those markets where the ideal is, oh, the population is growing so fast here, you know, construction can't keep up. Like eventually it will, it, it always does. I mean, like Atlanta is a market that's been famous historically for overbuilding and booms and then having really bad crashes, right? Now it's kind of a darling of multifamily world because there's been so much population growth, but Atlanta mm -hmm. has always had population growth, right? It's not like this is a new phenomenon. It's had it's had really strong population growth for decades, right? And they've still managed to overbuild mm -hmm. during booms, right? So we'll see what happens during this cycle. So far, it hasn't happened, but you know, some of the likely suspects for over, overbuilding, and it kind of was looking like this at the beginning of COVID in a few places where they were starting to have some absorption issues were like Austin, Texas, right? You know, Dallas, Fort Worth, some of those markets where that have just been so hot for developers and syndicators, um, that's where the trouble is likely to start. <clears throat> you know, I think, ironically enough, like New York and San Francisco may be better off and may be able to better withstand something that's coming simply because it's just so freaking bloody hard. hard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. that that they didn't, you know, they didn't have as much supply on the market. So mm -hmm. yeah. So. Yeah, I'm all, again, I'll go again. I I don't play in your world. I've never done a deal over 20 units, um, but I do see a lot of similar behavior. To uh, again, I see investors chasing what they believe is easy money. I see lending um, standards or tweaks happening. I don't know. To me, I'll stand by my yes. It's a bubble. I mean, listen. I think the mindset is the is very similar. It's the can't lose mindset. Yes, can't that's, lose. That's, yes. The, that's the thing that frightens me a little bit about it was it's the same kind of like, you know, when once people start thinking they can't lose on an investment, then that, you know, that's the danger time. That's when complacency sets in. And you saw that in 2006. Yep. Uh, I mean, certainly that's how people talk about multifamily right now. I don't think that necessarily guarantees that there is going to be a crash or that if there is a crash, it's going to be like dire, like it was in two, you know, because of all the other stuff that we've talked about, the sure. banks maintain relative, you know, discipline uh, and the, you know, the, the supply demand supply issues are still pretty favorable, right? Mm -hmm. Because the supply isn't there, but the supply historically always catches up and then, then overshoots the mark. Yeah. So, this is very cool. This has been a fun conversation. One more time. What is the Facebook group people need to join? It is multifamily investment community. And I ask you, please join from the first for the first time. Well, you can only join for the first time, right? So when you join it, please use a computer because there are some questions you need to answer and Facebook only shows them to computer users. After that, you're free to use your phone, but just that, that first time. Uh, 
please come in by computer and uh, mention that you saw me on this podcast. So that's great too. I always love to see if people are anybody's watching this or if yeah. Michael and I are just talking to each other. <laughs> people love you, Jonathan. Do me a favor, folks. If you're still watching this, leave a comment below. Let Jonathan know you watched to the end. Take care. <laughs> okay.